passion for mental health also comes from the fact that I lived in a family where we were touched by mental illness. And it was, again, a situation in Canada where you didn't really know what was wrong with that person. You just knew they were a little bit different. You learned to love them because they were a family member and you accepted what the situation was. But then as symptoms became worse, you needed help. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our CEO, Mike Bros, is going to interview his friend and collaborator, Kathy Lingwah. She is based in Canada and represents the International Initiative for Mental Health Leadership. It's a unique international collaborative of nine countries that focuses on improving mental health and addiction services. Lately, Mike has been working alongside Kathy as IMHL prepares for its leadership exchange coming up in Washington, D.C. this early September. You can get all the details at IIMHL.com, and that link is in this podcast show notes. Okay, let's get to their interview. The Mental Health Download starts now. Hi, welcome. My name is Mike Bros. Welcome to the Mental Health Download. I'm here today with Kathy Langlois. Now, this year the event will be the gathering will be here in the states. But in previous years, what other countries have been the location of the what's going to happen here in the states this year? But it's happened in other countries previously. Okay, well, you asked how long we've been doing this, and the IIMHL has been around since 2003. And it was created as a collaboration of three countries at that time. The U.S. was one of the founding countries, along with England and New Zealand. And the leaders of mental health um, policy in their, their respective U.S., the U.S. government, the English government, and the New Zealand government said, we could learn a lot from each other. Let's create this little initiative. Let's fund it. And let's see where it goes. And so 19, uh, sorry, 16 years later, we now have nine countries. And we hold um, our signature event, which is called the Leadership Exchange, which is what we're having uh, this year in the U.S. in September. Um, it's a week-long event. On the Monday and Tuesday are the small little matches where people are matched up, as I, I described. So those are meetings. I say they're small because they're about like 20 people. Uh, could be as little as one or two, though, because we've had experience with those, and they're very successful as well. Then everybody on the Wednesday will travel to Washington, D.C. for meetings that start that evening and then Thursday, Friday. So we do that about every 16 months to 24 months, and we rotate across the continents where IMHL has members. So the last time we did this was in um, spring of 2018 in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, previous to that was uh, down in um, uh, Sydney, Australia. And the one coming up, is going to be in Christchurch, New Zealand. So what we do is it basically goes Europe, North America, and then Australasia. So that's our rotation. And uh, so we're, le- we're just coming off the Sweden event into the US event. And now we're going down to Christchurch, New Zealand in March of 2021. So we're skipping 2020. This is so interesting to me. So, you know, I've been practicing social work uh, here in Oklahoma. I've been licensed practicing for now 39 years. And I'm in a a place in my uh, career where I've actually been, before I even was aware that you all existed, I've been talking to others and saying I'm very, very interested in 
what's going on to address some of these issues internationally. And that, uh, you know, sometimes uh, U.S., we can be a little bit, oh, uh, I can say this, ethnocentric, uh, that we have, we think we can sort of have all the best ideas, which is not true. Uh, there are uh, very creative uh, very unique strategies and solutions that other uh, that have been developed in other countries. Um, some of those are not translatable, but many of them are translatable, and that we can learn from each other. And so, uh, I've been of that mindset for quite a while. But then I get this call uh, from Valerie Stearns at Mental Health America, which is our national organization here in the states. Uh, we're an affiliate of Mental Health America, and Valerie called me and said, "Hey, Mike." Uh, there's this opportunity, and uh, we w- would be interested if you're interested in participating. Um, our piece is housing and homelessness uh, for this year, and uh, we've, of course, been very, very involved in the development of affordable housing, uh, but also um, addressing issues of homelessness, not just by ourselves, but uh, across the state, and then uh, pairing up with um, organizations and individuals across the country. Um, and we have become, Mental Health Association Oklahoma have become known as uh, one of the national leaders in the development of affordable housing and addressing uh, the needs of people with um, that have been homeless. But So when I heard about this, I was just so excited. And of course, we had to compete against uh, wonderful affiliates doing great work and um, um, uh, Mental Health America Los Angeles and Mental Health America South Carolina. Uh, uh, those guys are doing fabulous work in this area too, but we got selected and we are just so thrilled. But from a personal standpoint, uh, I think that um, what you guys are doing as an organization uh, really lends to a setting in a context where uh, exchange of ideas can occur and also that um, that we can build relationships that can be sustained over time to draw upon. And I think that's those are those are ideas that are embedded in uh, IIMHL. Uh, you're absolutely right there, Mike. Um, what we found is the bringing together of the small matches <clears throat> allows some real deep knowledge exchange and the beginning of the development of trust relationships. And I think we could all reflect that once you have a trust relationship in place, knowledge can transfer at the speed of light because you you know that you can share a problem and it won't be shared elsewhere. Um, You can brainstorm solutions with somebody and they're going to give you the best that they have to offer because you you trust each other. And so uh, we've seen fantastic collaboratives develop and they can do amazing things just on the basis that they spent time together face to face they began to know each other and they made a commitment to stay connected and to keep learning from each other. And that really is the principle uh, on which uh, IMHL was founded, was that if you take leaders, and I want to take a moment to define what is a mental health leader, because it's not necessarily just the CEO of an organization. Absolutely, it is the CEO of an organization, but it is also anyone who works in the mental health area, including in sectors that impact mental health, like schools or Uh, policing, who feel that they want to bring change 
in the area of mental health. So we have better mental health outcomes and better results for people who um, you know, have issues of distress or illness or even in the area of prevention, someone who wants to bring change to the way prevention is done. Um, these are all defined as leaders. So it could be a policy analyst, it could be a clinician, it could be a researcher, it could be someone who's responsible for delivering a service and its peers. Oh, I must stop there and say that we've really, really, really embraced the notion of peers and the role that they play in bringing change to the system because they have lived the experience and they know what needs to be changed. And so what we've defined very broadly as a mental health leader is that opportunity for anyone who wants to bring change in the area of mental health to come and join in our organization, which costs nothing. If your country is a member, you automatically be, can join for free and you can come to our events for free, except you have to pay all of your own travel and accommodation, but there's no registration fees. Again, that's all covered by the country member fee. So um, that's what we're building is this, um, collaborative and collaborative of collaboratives, many collaboratives on different topics and uh, really excited that you're hosting this match on housing and homelessness. I know it's going to be a fantastic match for those that who come to join you and i um, really hoping more people will sign up. Yeah, we're really excited. Of course, we have a collaborative here local, which is called Away Home for Tulsa, and it's a organ. It's a collaborative of about twenty six different organizations, faith based, uh, public, private, that work together to all of us working in collaboratively to end and eliminate chronic homelessness from our community. And so we have this uh, local collaborative, and I'm in the process of bringing that collaborative into these meetings that we'll have in September here in Tulsa. So there can be a really rich, not only exchange of information with us as Mental Health Association Oklahoma, but then with the whole collaboration. And we anticipate we're uh, working on having some of the local area tribes involved. We uh, have a quarter of a rich Native American history here, of course, in Oklahoma. And uh, uh, and the tribes here are doing some fantastic work We in, the, in their own communities with housing and homelessness. As a matter of fact, I know I have a lunch next week with uh, an individual on our board with the Cherokee Nation. And I'm going to be working through her to uh, get uh, invite the Cherokee Nation to participate. And so, you know, so we're really seeing this as something that can really come into our community and state in a very, very rich way to open us up to new ideas, new ways of thinking. And sometimes I always call it the, that step back moment where sometimes we, we get so head down on where we're at and what we're working on that we fail to be able to step back and, and sort of look and go, wait a minute, how can we think about this in a different way? How can we maybe, you know, uh, the old thing about if you're doing the same thing over and over again and you're getting bad outcomes, try something else. And sometimes we can just continue to try the same thing that's not working over and over again. It's just human nature. But this is like, we're going to try to have this be a real step back moment. Now, people come in from other regions, other countries, uh, the member countries is just an incredible opportunity for us that we're embracing it wholeheartedly. Kathy, tell me a little bit, as I listen to you, it's really clearly you also have a, a wide range of clinical background experience. I don't know much about 
that. But take a little bit of time for our listeners to kind of just tell us a bit about your history as in this profession that led you up to now what you're doing now with IIMHL so we can uh, better understand and, and your passion that's clearly uh, evident in, as I hear you talk about this. I'm one of those leaders who comes from a policy world. And in fact, my first working with, um, with in the mental health field is when I joined the federal government in Canada, and I joined something called the First Nations and Inuit Health Branch, which meant I was working with Indigenous populations. And my approach has always been to listen first, seek to understand, and then move forward from there. So when I moved into that position in about 2002, my first uh, the first thing I did was I sat with Indigenous leaders who cared a lot about the work that I was going to be doing. And I asked them, because I had responsibility for mental health and addictions, I had children and youth, and I had chronic disease prevention in my portfolio. And when I sat with them and I said, what is your top priority for me to be focused on? And they said, mental health. It is our absolute top priority. And I don't know where things were at in 2002 in the US, but in Canada, mental health was so much stigmatized, I couldn't even say it within my organization and not have looks sent my way about why would you work on that? And so I just quietly began working with our Indigenous leaders. I engaged them in a strategic planning process. Things were happening in the Canadian landscape where, you know, in about midstream of what we were doing, the government announced a new mental health commission to look at the issue of mental health in the country. And we were poised to say, here's the work we have done from an Indigenous perspective. And at the end of the day, when the Canadian National Mental Health Strategy was released, the work that we had done was injected into that as a whole. Nothing was changed. They put the entire, our entire piece of work. And I had Indigenous leaders say to me, this has never happened before, where our work has been reflected in a national document. There was a lot of pride. And then from there, we moved forward. And it has continued to be, uh, I, I left that position about five years ago, but I have continued to watch how Indigenous mental health in Canada has, and that's First Nations, Inuit and Métis populations, has really taken its own place with resources that have come with it to really make a change um, in the landscape of, of what uh, Indigenous people face in terms of mental health. There's still a long way to go, um, but there has been an important change. And so that's the background I come from a government uh, perspective, delivering programs, but wanting to make sure the programs were relevant and then learning a lot from an Indigenous perspective. So I really appreciated when you said the step back moment, uh, engaging the Cherokee tribe, the Cherokee nation, and learning from them. And I, I focused on one thing you said, new ways of thinking. And I just want to say they're new ways of thinking to us. They're not new ways of thinking to the Cherokee nation because it is based on their traditional knowledge. And it is just um, a different worldview um, that brings uh, a new perspective to us on, uh, on ways that you can go about doing things. And that is what I learned, is that um, the ways of knowing of Indigenous populations are steeped in, you know, eons and eons of history. And there's so much that can be learned and valued to bring forward today. So that's my background and where I come from. And my passion for mental health also comes from the fact that I lived in a family where we were touched by mental illness. And it was, again, a situation in Canada where you didn't really know what was wrong with that person. You just knew they were a little bit different. 
you learned to love them because they were a family member and you accepted what the situation was. But then as symptoms became worse, you needed, you needed help. And so I lived that experience with a family member and I have a deep passion because of that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things embedded in your description of the process in your journey is that sometimes um, we find that in this work, when it, particularly at a policy level, it can, if we're not careful, it can be top down. And one of the things I heard you really describe here is more of a a listening uh, at really where meeting people actually where they're at. In this case, it was the indigenous populations and really listening and listening to their traditions and taking that information and let it filter up and go up into the policy area and which I would argue is a more informed policy development. But a lot of times it doesn't work that way. It's more top down. Uh, and I know we struggle with that in the States. Sometimes it can be a, a top down. And uh, I know I've had uh, over the years, uh, many, many debates with some of my colleagues with Mental Health America and some of the other affiliates on some of the policies that we have are in the absence of actually having to be on the street in someone's home, be with them, meeting them where they're at, and being able to help them with their particular situation and their growth out of that uh, in a way that I don't have to impose something on them. And I really hear you, I really hear that process, that thinking in what you describe in terms of your own journey there. Yes, and indeed, the way I started to look at our team working in the federal government, and I would say this to my staff, is we are the translators. Let us listen to what the populations we serve are saying to us, but also let us listen to what the top down is saying to us because we can translate. So, you know, we would hear um, a message from the top about outcomes and the need to see results. Okay, that's ubiquitous in any government. And then we would listen to the same kind of message, but this is how we will get results. And so to go to sit at those tables in government and bring the message of absolutely we want results and we're totally uh, on board with that. And here's how we think using the messages we've received from the community, the best way to go about doing that. And that's where our success was, is we translated the two worlds that had never spoken to each other and would never understand each other because it was our job as the translators to work in both worlds and bring uh, solid policy that would work on the ground, but that would meet the needs of the top. So um, that's, I think, where the success uh, lied. Kathy, we need you here in the States now. I'm so glad you're doing this. That kind of, That's really refreshing to hear that perspective. Uh, sometimes it doesn't get communicated in that way. I don't hear that sometimes. It's more like um, we're the top listen to us. Here's what, here's what, here's what you're going to do. And here's how you're going to do it versus that sort of a, it's a very refreshing uh, worldview philosophy that you uh, apply in your community and in your country in terms of the development of effective policies. And, you know, um, you're welcome here uh, anytime. What I would say, Mike, is thank you. I'd love to come. So um, keep me in mind. I might make a tour down there someday. But if you feel that you're in that translation role, then what can you do is what I would ask. So are you able to speak almost truth to power in some ways by saying to the top when they bring you the messages, you will do this, but you could say, well, what were you really trying to get here are results, right? Well, I'm tr really trying to get the same thing. So here's what, what we're hearing will work. And I don't know what the room is to maneuver. You know, you have to have a little bit of um, 
um, a, an ear at the top that wants to hear it. That's really helpful. And it's how you how can you cultivate that? I know sometimes I would just take the approach of I'll, I'll seek forgiveness. I'm not going for permission right now. I'm going to just have to, you know, just deal with the consequences of going about it this way. Because, I, you know, as a senior public servant, I did have some of my own power and control as well to do what I wanted uh, before I could go so far before I could hold back. So, <laughs> uh, well, you, you and I share that I have, uh, uh, you know, we, we really take as an organization, we always go back, we always say our heart and soul is that we're mental health advocates and mental health educators. And so in the advocacy role, I always joke, but there's some seriousness to it that I've at one time or another over my 26 years now being in this position, I've, I've made any, a lot of people mad at different times. And I always tell them it's not personal. It's just business. This is the work that we do. We need you to, you know, listen to what we're saying. And we also try to, uh, I was just, um, before I, uh, before the, the, the broadcast here, I was meeting with a group of my, uh, social work students that I supervise every semester. And I was talking to them about the idea that I can't be and I can't, we can't be effective advocates unless we're also willing to look internally at ourselves and making sure that because hypocrisy, uh, less than the best practices, uh, sometimes occur in our own house. And we have to have the courage and willingness to look at ourselves, which helps sanction us then to be more effective advocates if we're willing to do that. That's kind of the, the philosophy that we've tried to take over the years. Talk a little bit about kind of going back to the event this fall in September. Um, in you know, you described how the first two days will be here, of course, in Tulsa. And of course, we've got wonderful plans uh, uh, the, uh, for the, the two days. And then some opportunities in the evening for other people uh, in the community who may not be able to participate during that day to meet our guests, uh, interact with them in the evening time and have some socialization time. So we're really going all out. We take a, our take our Southern hospitality thing very seriously here uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, so we're doing that. And then, of course, then Wednesdays, as you mentioned, is a travel day and everybody from uh, we'll be coming together in uh, Washington, D.C. Take a little bit of time, Kathy. Talk about what are the other uh, cohorts around the country here in the States on the first two days? What are those topics? And then what will happen in when we come together in Washington, D.C.? Describe that a little bit. Okay. So um, some of the other topics that are happening, in fact, there are 31 uh, topics. So 30 others, including, you know, excluding yours, there are 30 other topics. So um, we've had a real interest in focusing on lived experience. So our, you know, one of our matches is peer leadership. It's going to be hosted at Yale uh, with Larry Davidson, who, you know, I think is well known in the U.S. as somebody who has um, done a lot of work around training of peers. Um, and uh, he's doing that in partnership with the International Association of Peer Supporters, which is also based in the U.S., um, we have another match on youth and young adult leadership, which is another priority of ours is to hear the youth voice. You know, uh, like you, I have over 30 years experience working. Um, and sometimes you, you know, you feel like you've seen it all, but wow, the youth really of today really have a lot to share and a new perspective to bring. And I think we're going to feel that presence in the uh, Thursday, Friday program. So they're working in a match, but they're get also getting ready for their panel that they're going to have and the role they're going to play in the event. 
Um, another area, maybe staying in the youth area, we have a children and youth match, um, innovations to improve access and outcomes for children's families and communities. This is an example of a group that's been around since 2007. And while it's not always the same people that come to the match, there is a small core of one or two people that manage to keep that group alive. They host, um, um, I think they host phone calls every couple of months to keep on top of what's going on in all of the countries. And the, they're based out of New Zealand, the two that have been the heart and soul of that lately. Um, and they're going to be here in the U.S. Um, we're having an infant and perinatal mental health match. So that kind of covers our youth cohort. We have a couple of matches, one on Indigenous mental wellness, and another one that I find really interesting, it's a new, time, new one this year, Multicultural Leadership Frameworks for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion in Mental Health. And they're really just wanting to explore what are the leadership frameworks outside of the dominant mainstream culture? So what can we learn from those? And so there's a match being hosted on that in DC. Uh, let me just see. I'll go down. I'm looking at my list here. Um, I've got uh, I've got on the list uh, integrating mental health and primary care: the solution to fragmented healthcare. That's being hosted by Wellbeing Trust out of Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, we have a cities and urban regions match. This one is really focused on cities who are taking a population uh, public health approach within their cities to change the nature of the cities to prevent um, a lot of the distress and illness that can happen in a city. And that one's being hosted in Toronto in Canada. Um, we have a comprehensive suicide prevention match being hosted at SAMHSA. And I mean, I could go on. I don't want to talk about all 30 of them or I'd be here for an hour. So, um, but you get a sense of the variation of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you get a real sense of just the breadth and the scope of of what IIMHL is really trying to do in time to bring and, and create dialogue. These are every one of those that you mentioned are extremely important things that we are also very, very involved with in different ways. We have been uh, very involved early on here in Oklahoma in uh, peer work. Of course, the state of Oklahoma, our state department of Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services has a, a, a red recovery support specialist certification for peers. Uh, and we have been one of the leaders uh, in the employment of peers in our organization. Uh, about half of our 184 employees actually live in some type of recovery. Uh, many of them uh, lived experience include homelessness, serious mental illness, histories of addiction, also incarceration. And uh, I kind of refer to them as the, uh, those as the big four. Uh, and we have a lot of people that are that have touched all of those boxes at different points and now live, as you say, the power of peer-to-peer. -peer. I've been where you're at. I think I can help you. Uh, I understand where you're coming from. All of that process that occurs in a special way for an individual of, uh, with lived experience talking with another individual or group with similar lived experiences and the power of that, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing uh, to see the, 
the opportunities there. And but as you mentioned, the importance that we continue to invest in peers, that we in in addition to their lived experiences, we continue to invest in their training, their development, their growth, and the opportunities that are provided to them to better even more in depth get into being able to be a, in, as effective as possible as a peer support specialist or uh, as a, in a peer-to-peer manner. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, IMHL is another way of investing in peers because we embrace them within our network. They, we recognize them as leaders in their own right uh, in terms of their ability to bring change to the system and their interest in bringing change to the system. And so being part of the network is, you know, anyone who's part of our network is investing in their own development, but especially peers we feel have a lot to offer. Absolutely. I want to turn just here to kind of finish up on a little bit, Kathy. Again, our area here in Tulsa uh, will be uh, housing and homelessness. And of course, uh, there is conversations going on like never before. As you said, for mental health, uh, we nobody used to want to talk about it. Now it's almost almost in vogue uh, to talk about it suddenly. It's very interesting with public officials, sports stars, uh, celebrities being very transparent, uh, describing issues on social media. Now, uh, with that is uh, the uh, issues of homelessness uh, here in the wealth of this country. And people are very troubled. Uh, they drive around. Uh, they see individuals on the streets. They see that they're homeless. People are feel I talk to they 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 don't like it. They want to help. They're not sure what to do. You know the growth of panhandling here in the states uh, with people on corners, street corners. People don't know what to do, so they're handing money out of their car windows at stoplights to, to help themselves feel better when it's not really doing almost nothing to really address the problem. And so one of the things that we're trying to do here at Mental Health Association Oklahoma is to really provide different avenues and methods and ways where the general public can actually get involved in uh, the process of us addressing the need for more affordable housing and the availability of it, the services that wrap around an individual who's moved off the streets into affordable uh, affordable housing uh, unit, and then uh, helping them then move the, from there to improve mental health, physical health care, dental care, uh, and then uh, eventually, uh, for some, they have, we've seen over and over again, they want to get back involved in the economic sector of employment and self-sustainability. So we really are excited about that. And I wonder what the conversation sounds like in Canada around, you've had the, you, the opportunity to travel uh, in your role uh, now really around the globe with uh, IMHL. But what, what are the kind of conversations you hear in the circles you run in around housing, availability, affordable housing in particular, and homelessness? And talk a bit about that. What I can share is that in Canada, um, maybe about five to six years ago, there was a real push on housing first models. Uh, this was led out of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and uh, they had funding to do a number of projects across the country where, you know, the issue was housing. Let's just deal with housing. And, and it sounds like that is exactly what your approach is. It's a housing first approach and then the wraparound services come, but let's deal with housing. And a lot was learned from that. Uh, very successful projects to the point where the projects were coming to the end and the money was gonna be gone. 
and the local government stepped up and put the ongoing funding in. I mean, this was a, a way of leveraging that kind of an ongoing process to, so, to show what a successful approach it was. Now, I think you'll agree that um, there's still, uh, the needs definitely outstrips the resources. And so there are still uh, homelessness issues, uh, but we have proof within Canada, for example, that this housing first approach is a very solid approach. There's a great evidence base there. And um, the example I can share with you is we had some leaders over from Ireland and they were attending the match in Vancouver at the time where they were showcasing the housing first approach. And these two, the two uh, public uh, government, they work for the government of Ireland, uh, responsible for designing their homelessness strategies. And they left the match saying, we've been doing it all wrong. We're going to stop everything we're doing and we're going to do this because they realized the approach they were taking was not going to have the results they wanted, but they could see the results on the ground in Vancouver, and they totally changed their approach, which for IMHL was an amazing thing to hear, that we had actually changed the course of work in a country based on what they were able to see by coming to one of our leadership exchanges. So that's kind of a perspective I can share with you around that. Yeah, we one of the things here in Oklahoma, we have been very successful on really developing both public-private partnerships and being able to leverage private funding as a way of then helping to leverage public funding. And I know around the states, a lot of times here in Oklahoma is true, but around the country is uh, there's a real initial look to the public sector to address the issue. And the public sector is trying to address the issue. Uh, of course, our federal government passed a law. Now we have a federal housing trust fund with uh, money flowing out of the federal government into uh, individual states on a prorated basis. As a matter of fact, Mental Health Association Oklahoma just recently opened a new redesigned, refurbished uh, housing program that was able to leverage some of those funds. And we were able to put together some HUD funding through the city of Tulsa, the federal housing trust fund funding through Oklahoma Housing Finance Agency, and with private dollars that we raised to leverage. And we were able to do a $2.7 million renovation of one of our housing programs here called the Altamont Property, where a lot of individuals who uh, have moved off the streets, many of them have been longtime chronic homeless in our community. Now they have a small apartment. They have have a place to cook or meals are served there uh, three times a day. They have laundry facilities. They have access to staff who are there as needed, getting them involved. And uh, so, again, that is one example where we're trying to leverage public and private. Um, and, you know, we now have, of course, you know, 23 apartment buildings in 20 different neighborhoods scattered across our city. And now in Oklahoma City, at our state capital, we've had also about, we're getting close to uh, owning 32 units, but we also master lease a total of about 150 units there. And uh, we have people calling us from around the country. Um, I was on the phone the other day with an, a woman from Orange County, California, trying to get some people from Orange County, California to come to Tulsa to see how we've been able to leverage particularly the private sector. And I think the private sector has really, around the country, has really been kind of, uh, is an uh, generally an untapped resource. Sometimes in the private sector, you get a lot of complaints uh, about homelessness and 
in the community and how that looks. You hear that from the business community. They feel like it affects their uh, business model, and we are very sensitive to that, what have you, with our uh, our homeless outreach team now uh, responds and businesses call us and they're concerned. They have an alternative other than calling law enforcement. They can call us. Uh, we call it our homeless outreach rapid response team uh, that we have out on the streets now here in Tulsa, and we're in the process of developing that in Oklahoma City uh, as well. Uh, so I think it's interesting about uh, one of the things we're going to talk about at, in September here in Tulsa uh, with the matches and exchange ideas to learn how are they uh, using the pri- public sector and their private sector, and we're going to get a chance to talk about how we're doing that. We're going to hopefully have some of our funder, private funders present to talk about their perspective as private funders in uh, getting engaged in addressing the development of affordable housing and, and the elimination of homelessness homelessness in the community. So I think that'll be an exciting exchange for our matches to to learn and to also share what we've been able to do. And we're going to to have tours and those sort of things to really go out and allow our matches to meet people in the community, to see the housing, visit the housing, learn from them. And and hopefully not just this is a one-time deal for us. I see us continuing to participate with IIMHL. I think you guys are onto something here and have been. I think you know that and it's just new to us. And we are all in with what you guys are doing. It's an incredible vision. And I just can't, congratulate you, Kathy, and the team involved with this enough. And I know Mental Health America, uh, Paul Gianfrido, their CEO, is on your advisory board and is just very thrilled and Valerie. And uh, so I, I see, I look for uh, increasing opportunities as, as not just this year, but in future years for us to be involved with you all. Well, that sounds great, uh, Mike. I'd love to stay connected with you. And I just wanted to reflect on your comment about engaging the private sector. I actually think this is an area of expertise that the U.S. can offer many other countries. Uh, So it's going to be very interesting to see how that conversation goes in your match. I know there's somebody from Canada coming. I'll be looking forward to hearing from her about that angle with the private sector. I think, you know, sometimes the private sector for someone who works in a public sphere, the private sector is this big unknown. And how do you make the connection and build a relationship so that those funds could flow. And so I think you have a lot to teach uh, the people who come to your match and to teach other countries. And I would look forward to um, working with you around that in the future. Um, and I was going to say those Orange County folks, make ask them to come to your match. I think they really get a lot out of it um, if that timing works for them. And uh, I just want to thank you for, um, for putting on this great match. And um, I look forward to hearing the outcomes from it and staying connected with you. Absolutely, Kathy. And again, thank you for your time and your willingness to uh, be uh, our guest on Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Mental Health Download. To our listeners, if you're interested in participating uh, in September with our event, uh, just contact me uh, here at Mental Health Association Oklahoma, and we'll give you all the information, and it's free of charge. Uh, We have lots of space for participants to come in and set in on uh, the two days, uh, either all day or both days, or if you can come by uh, only a limited amount of time, we're going to have those kind of opportunities for uh, participants to come in and uh, actively participate or just listen to the conversations. Uh, So uh, this is a um, a wonderful thing and uh, we're just so honored to be a part of it. And again, I want to, again, thank you today uh, for your willingness to be our guest on Mental Health Download. 
It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Kathy, and we'll see you soon. Absolutely. See you in D.C. See you in D.C.